Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to give. I pray that you would be glorified in it. Lord, as we give, may we emulate you. May we give with a generous, cheerful heart. For Father, that's what you've asked of us. And Lord, I pray that we would give sacrificial, recognizing, Lord, that it ought to cost us as it costs you to give. And Father, I pray that you just be with us in our finances. Lord, I pray that you be with those that may be struggling in their faith in giving. Father, that you may encourage them and meet their needs as we just think about Thanksgiving so much this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your giving. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 2 Samuel as we jump quite a few years now into David's life. When we last saw him, he had defeated Goliath. We are now going to jump to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We had read of David defeating God's enemies, Goliath and the Philistines, in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. We see of David's suffering in chapter 19 through the hands of Saul, of David welcoming those in distress and saving the people of God in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. We see his fear of the Lord, his befriending the Gentiles in chapter 27, and his suffering then at the hands of the Gentiles. All of these things that we have not read, but you may read it yourself in 1 Samuel, are meant to highlight that David is indeed a man after God's own heart, that he has served God's purposes in his generation, and that he is a king who foreshadows or points to Jesus. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David finally takes rightful rule over all of Israel and establishes Jerusalem as the capital. And as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, David now brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And this is where we find ourselves today in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for the life of David. He is a man of inspiration, many times inspiring us to attain to greater feats of faith, but at the same time we also can recognize ourselves with him as he cries out for you in times of trouble. Father, I thank you for his testimony. I thank you that it's recorded here for your glory and for our good, for our posterity to learn how to serve you, even in the good times and in the bad times. Be with us now, open up our minds and hearts as we open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7, a very important uh, chapter in your scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to give you several over-alliterated observations today. I went kind of hog-wild over-alliterations, making things start with the same letter. Uh, so you can just follow along with me this morning as we look at some observations about this passage, the first one, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to see David has a desire to build a temple for God. So in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with us. 
But what we find here is David and Israel have found rest from the surrounding countries. He has been successful in ascending to the throne. He has been successful in uniting all the tribes into one nation. He has established his throne and capital at Jerusalem, and he's built a house of his own, a nice home for the king, and he now desires to build a house for God, a a temple, if you will, for people to come and worship Yahweh. At this time, you remember that there is a tabernacle that was built and instructed by Moses that is still in in place there in Israel, but they had moved that, the Ark of Covenant, from there and just put it in a tent in Jerusalem. David's desire to build a house for God comes from his love from God and from a concern about the lavishness of his own house. Well, God's house is a tent. It's an elaborate tabernacle, but it's a tent nonetheless. David has a holy dissatisfaction, and he wants to do more for God. Nathan the prophet had served as a counselor and a confidant of David. He appears here for the first time in Scripture. It was a good idea, as Nathan would say, but as we shall see, the timing is just not right. David is not the person to do so. What we see here is definitely a clash of human plans fighting against divine revelation. So David has a desire to build a temple. Well, God has a response for David starting in verse 4. And the first part, as we see, is it's going to be a, a reorientation of thinking. Look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Think of it. David says, I, I want to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan, as any of us would say, that sounds like a great idea. And word reaches the Lord and he sets and he thinks and says, wait a second, David's going to build me a house? There's a reorientation of, of thinking here. We see that God recognizes that David has served him. He calls him my servant. Yet that does not mean that God needs David's services, in this case, to build a temple. God asks, who are you to redirect David's thinking, to make sure that David understands the true pecking order, so to speak? Peace and tranquility David is enjoying during this time of rest comes from the hand of God. David himself would one day write in Psalms chapter 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. And he has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, he writes, and put their trust in the Lord. So David here wants to do this. In this case, God is the one who takes care of David. It's kind of very simple like this. How many parents here have adult children? Let me ask you, and just kind of just by looking at you, don't have to raise your hand or or make a comment on it, but typically if you're like me, maybe you're not like me, maybe I need to change, but with adult children, when we go out to eat, do you ever have a problem letting your children, adult children pay, or do you always pay? How How many parents here say you have a trouble, you always want to pay for them? Okay, there's a few of us. There's just something about that. Why do you think that is? It's because we're the parents. We still feel like we want to take care of them. I, you know, I remember the first time my, my dad took me out to eat. He goes, hey, let's go out and get something to eat. And I was real young. I'd gotten a job, though, but he ordered his food, and then he went and walked away. And so I was the first time I was ever with my dad, and I was stuck paying for my own. You know, it's like, oh, my goodness, good thing I brought money. That was the day. There was no plastic, you know, debit cards or anything like that. 
But there's something about it. But I remember then going with him as soon as we had children. It's like, no, he always wanted to pay. And that's something that struck my kids. Say, no, no, let us take care of it. There's something about that, isn't it? There's something within it. And that's not exactly what's happening here. But God's saying, wait a second, remember who's who. So he's just given a little reorientation, so to speak. And as we go on to verse 6, there's almost a, a mild rebuke. And I want to say a mild rebuke, not a strong rebuke, but a mild rebuke of David's priorities. God says in verse 6, speaks to Nathan, he says, Have I not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day? But I've been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Hey, why have you not built me a house cedar? God has traveled with Israel as they traveled. He was mobile. It was that tabernacle that could be built up and taken down and carried just as they were over the years. He hasn't asked for more than what he has actually given them, his people, as they were still traveling around the country, the nations, the world. This is not something that God has asked for up to this point or required. It's almost as if God is saying, listen, as soon as you're settled, then we can talk about me. And then we see a reminder that God has provided David's position and protection. Look at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. This here is a reminder to David of what has been happening in this relationship. This was to keep David humble in the midst of the peace he is experiencing. David is probably thinking in his head, and this is my opinion, my, my subjective thinking, is God has blessed me so much. Now is the time for me to show my gratitude. However, God is not done with blessing David. There's more to come. And as if we were to continue to read in 2 Samuel, we see that peace is only for a moment as he's going to be thrown into many more battles to continue. This is not the right time. Good thinking, David, but it's not the right time. So here's David. This is just like how God is. David says, I want to bless the Lord. Like you and I, we'll, we'll say that many times. I just want to bless the Lord. There's some peace in my life. Things are going well. I just want to be a blessing to God. And then God turns it around. Because as David is seeking to do something for God, God turns around and says, wait a second. I've got something special that I want to do for you. And it's going to be much, much greater than you building me some house made out of wood or gold and stone. And that's where we come to as we look at the promise of God to continue to provide for David as we go in verse 9b. And what we're going to see here is the I will statements of God. I will do this. I will do this. These I will statements, these promises, are based on the goodness, the kindness, and the faithfulness of God. You'll see the first one there is one of prestige. Look at verse 9 in that second part. He says, I will make you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. I'm going to give you a prestige that's going to be above all of those that you might have known from before. Your name is going to be great. I will do this for you. He then says, I will give you a possession. 
He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. No longer is Israel going to be moving, but now they are settled in their land, and there's going to be a place that God's going to plant them where they can grow and they can flourish. The next one is peace. Not only will they be not no longer disturbed, but he says, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all my enemies. Now this is not happening yet. Israel is still facing these types of things as we read through scripture, as we go on. But he says, I am going to give you a peace that will last. Not only that, he says, I'm going to give you a prosperity. Continue moreover. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. David here is now guaranteed a promise of a legacy of prosperity that's going to extend beyond him. Now, as we continue, we're not going to look at this exactly, but as we look at Solomon, his son, we see that Solomon bewails the state of the world in which one works for his labors, the next come and spend it all. Vanity of vanities. But yet here we get a promise that David's line will prosper above all things. The next one we see is there is a parentage. There's a new relationship. There's going to be a, an adoption that's going to happen in verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man and with the stripes of the sons of men. There will, there will be a new relationship. There will be a new parentage here. But then the last one, which I love, is permanence. In verse 15, he says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, in your house, in verse 16, in your kingdom shall be made sure when? How long? Forever before me. And then look at this. This is the, you may want to underline this. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. Wow, what a promise. David tries to do something for God. And once again, God outdoes him. Have you ever tried to outdo God? Have you ever tried to outgive God or outserve Him? Just cannot be done. Every time we try to think we're going to do something great for God, God turns around and says, I'm the one. I'm the one who provides. I will do these things. So in here, we see the I will statements of God. I'm going to give you a, a name, a prestige, a possession, a peace, a prosperity, a parentage, and a permanence that, that, that's going to blow your mind, so to speak, in my own vernacular. Now, what's important for you and I to recognize is that these promises are not based on David's goodness. They're not based on David's ability. David will not be able to do what God is promising him here, but they're truly based on God's grace. These promises are something that cannot be annulled. What we see is death does not annul it. David dies, Solomon comes, Solomon dies, Next son comes, so on and so forth. Death does not annul this promise as it may annul many other promises. 
Sin cannot destroy it. And we'll look at David's line begins to sin. Next week we'll see David's uh, big sin and then so on and so forth. As his family turns out to be very, very uh, topsy-turvy when it comes to serving God. But sin will not be able to destroy that kingdom. And then lastly, time will not exalt it. As you look at the great kingdoms of the world, whether it's the Egyptian kingdoms or the great uh, Alexander the Great or so on and so forth, the Roman Empire, time exhausts each and every one of them. But God promises here that it will not happen to this kingdom. It will last forever. What we see here as we start off is David has a desire to do a blessing for God. But what really comes into center place in this passage is God's kindness to David. God's faithfulness to David is on full display. And as we shall see, as we look at this promise, his kindness will touch you and I and our children forever. I love verse 17, as it's thus saith the Lord. He ends by saying, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all these visions, David came and spake these words to David. Now we're not going to be able to spend time in the rest past of that chapter. And I encourage you to finish it off, maybe even today with your family. But in verses 18 to 29, I can almost imagine at first, David would have been disappointed. I mean, aren't we disappointed when we have big plans for God and the things that we're going to do and God just says no or the timing just doesn't seem to be right? I can almost mean that David saying, but I, I had these big plans for you. I, I want to do it. I want people to come and see you and I want people to come and worship you in this place. Probably every day as he walked down to the temple for the sacrifices or to pray, he probably was embarrassed as he walked back up to his palace realizing where the Ark of the Covenant was. But instead of disappointment, in verses 18 through 29, we read of David's prayer. And David's prayer doesn't express frustration, anger, or a disappointment with God, but it expresses humility of what God is about to do for him and his family. He expresses an acceptance of God's will and a reorientation of his thinking and a gratitude that is summed up with his words of praise where he says, Therefore, you are a great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you. Let me ask you, when was the last time you started or in the middle or at the end of a prayer said, You are great, O God. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. Pray that you can experience that type of emotion, that type of humility, that type of acceptance of God's will in your life and the circumstances that he's doing and the gratitude for the blessings he's bestowed in your family. This is a great week in God's providence to talk about this type of thing because some of us are going into Thanksgiving weekend with some very drastic things happening in our lives, some very deep, hurtful things. Sometimes it's just very difficult to be thankful, isn't it? To be humble. Or to even accept God's will. But anytime more than this, we need to realize that God loves us. And even in our darkest, most difficult times, God's kindness is expressed towards us. 
And may we, like David, see that. David demonstrates his faith in God's promises as he spends the rest of his life planning and providing the materials that his son Solomon will build the temple with. If you were to go to 1 Chronicles 20 and 29, you don't have to do it at this moment, we're not going to look at it. But you'll see that David spends the rest of his life planning the temple and providing all the materials so that when his son is ready, that it's able to be done. Now that's a man who trusts in the goodness of his father. He trusts in those promises. David never saw one of these things happen in his life. Never one. But he accepted them as real truth. Now I want to talk about the importance of this passage. It's, it's a passage many of you might have read before. But we need, to, we need to understand what's the importance of this passage. In this passage, we're going to see the progression of redemptive history that God has been revealing since Genesis 3.15 when Eve fell into temptation and ate of the fruit and gave to her husband and he joined with her in that sin. You might remember in that chapter, after that event, that God promises that he will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Obviously, this is speaking of Satan's demise at the hand of the Messiah who will come to deliver God's people from the curse of sin and death. And from that moment, history now has been moving progressively to that point. From that time, God has chosen special men and women to bring this about. And I'd like to give you just a quick history. In Genesis chapter 4, we read that Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain has killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And where we see the promise of God in this flyover verse is at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Even after Cain kills Abel. God says, my promises are sure, and the lying continues. He would call out later Noah to preserve mankind after the flood, and he promises them, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then we read that God chooses Abram, commanding him to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you, are, that you will be a blessing. What a wonderful promise. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, God says. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a promise there that you and I need to realize has been shown to us, but yet God is not finished. He says later to Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Scripture then introduces us to Abraham's children and grandchildren that will inherit these promises, Isaac and then Jacob and his 12 sons. And the children of those 12 will grow up and will grow up, move to Egypt first as free men, then as slaves. For over 450 years, they labor for the Egyptians while calling out to God to rescue them. Eventually, God hears their cry. He chooses Moses to lead them out of Egypt to the land of promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
We read of their travels in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, their conquest of the promised land in Joshua, and their cycle of rebellion in Judges when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These are the children of Israel, the 12 tribes that David now rules and sets over. 2 Samuel chapter 7, now get this. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a major chapter in biblical revelation, specifically in historical redemptive plan of God. I know that's a big phrase, but telling us how God is going to redeem man. In other words, how he will save us from our sin. Here we see the inauguration of what's called the divinic covenant. Up to this point, God has promised his chosen people redemption, a time to flourish, fertility, many children, land, and also law and how they, can, how they can please God. But now God's people need something else. They need a person. They need a king. They need a savior. One theologian notes that it's going to be through David's family line that an even, an even greater blessing will come to God's people. In verse 11b, if you're still at 2 Samuel chapter 7, Look at verse 11b. We see that God promises a house or a dynasty for David and his offspring. He says, the Lord declares you that the Lord will make you a house. And we need to stop there. For we've seen something special that's been happening through the pages of history and through scripture. The word house has a dual meaning here in 2 Samuel. It can mean to build, as in to build a structure, but it also means to have children. David uses the word house to mean a dwelling. He wants to build a house, a temple, so to speak, for God, where God uses it to mean a people, children, humans. And this is where the promise to David points to Christ. For God says to David, I am going to build a house out of your children. There is going to be from your offspring, there is going to be one who will become the great Savior. Now, what we have to understand in Scripture is that there's always a near and fulfillment. Go back to verses 12 through 13 in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and when you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So through your people, through your lineage, through your children, I am going to build a kingdom. Not a building, not a structure, but I'm going to build a, a kingdom. Now you and I know from scripture that Solomon becomes king after David. He is known for being the wisest man after Jesus to ever live. He will build the temple and he will be worldwide known. People will come from all around the world to hear his wisdom and see the grandeur of his kingdom. However, Solomon dies. He was not the savior. He was not the final king. And after his death, his children actually lose the kingdom as it's torn into two. So we understand or must understand that if God's promises are eternal, then that that's something greater than Solomon is still to come. There is a kingdom that has been lost that's going to come that's going to be greater than the actual kingdom of Israel. 
And that greater one is prophesied and promised in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at the screen here at this verse. Isaiah would write hundreds of years after David. And he would write, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And look at these phrases here. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Even though Israel has fallen into two different countries, even though at this time as Isaiah is writing, one is about to be driven and be dispersed. Even though they they have fallen, the kings are not those that are godly. God has not forgotten his promise. Three to four hundred years after David, God's promise is still sure. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will continue the throne of David. In Zechariah chapter 6, they say to him, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall set and rule on his throne. There is a branch to come. Now you and I, as we look at this, this is still ancient history. For even though it's been promised to David and then promised here in Isaiah, we see that this was finally fulfilled in Luke chapter 1. Again, it's on the screen. Mary, the mother of Christ, is promised when the angel comes to her. It says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, who? David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be what? No end. There will be no end. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus himself would say, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here standing before you. In Hebrews chapter 3, you may want to turn to his scripture if you want, but what we see here is that something greater. Jesus is that greater son of David. He's that son of promise. He's going to be that savior. Here the writer of Hebrew writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. We understand that. If a house is wonderful and beautiful, who deserves more honor than the builder, the architect, the one who created it? We understand that. In verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is whom? God. Thank you. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But look at verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house. As a son. There's that parentage. There's that adoption. There's that 
bringing in. And then we are his house of indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in the hope. Because Christ is God's son and we are God's children, we then are adopted into that family and we become joint heirs with Christ in that building, in that house that God is building. And who can build a better house than God? The promise is the one that David can bank on. As he writes in Psalms 127, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. As we work our way through 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that God gives David a wonderful promise. The I will statements. I will do this and it will be forever. Again, not based on David's servanthood. It's not based on what David has done, but on the kindness and goodness And that promise has weaved its way through history and found its end in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for you and I today? What can you and I learn from this passage? What hope is found here today? What does that promise mean for you and I? Well, many times you and I can be like David. We can be filled with a holy dissatisfaction, desiring to do something big for God. It comes from a Good place, usually, but sometimes, like David, it can be coated with pride. The desire may be godly, but the timing could be wrong. What you and I need to do in those, day, those times is, is to trust God, to rest in His peace, and to be think, thankful for all the ways that God has sustained us. And they might find itself, and Lord, just give me a better job, and I'll serve you more. Lord, just give me more money and I'll give more. Lord, give me this, give me that, and I can do this for you. But God, many times, says, not yet. I'm ready to bless you. It's me who has to be the great work. Many times we can be like David. But you and I can also learn that God secures both David and Israel, and he continues to choose people to accomplish his will. This reveals God's loving kindness and grace and love. And His promises from Eden to Jerusalem leads to our salvation. But like David, you and I must realize that we are not the initiator, but a passive recipient. Let me say that again. You and I, as we live our lives, as we live out our Christian lives, we must realize that we are not the active initiator. We are just passive recipients to God's wonderful mercy. In this case, David didn't have to do any more other than just trust God's promise. God says, I will do it. I will, I will, I will. In what ways are you trying to do God's I wills? In which way are you trying to secure yourself rather than wait for God? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. Famous portion of Scripture. The greatest thing that you and I needed was to be saved from our sin. You and I needed a Savior. We didn't need a therapist. We didn't need a life coach. We didn't need a motivator. We needed a Savior. And we see here that we are not an active initiator, but a passive recipient just by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Where Paul writes, we were all dead in trespasses and sin in which we once walked. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If he were to stop there, you and I would have no hope. But verse 4 comes up, starting with a great word, but. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has now made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You and I find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the fact that God has raised up a house, a people, a chosen people with Christ on the throne. and You and I set submission to that. The temple that David planned and provided for was built several times over. It did not last the passage of time. Even today it is lost except in the rubble underneath the third highest holiest site of Islam, the Dome of Rock in Jerusalem. Yet the greater temple was born, lived, beaten, crucified, and rose from the dead. That greater temple, that greater house that God promised has now ascended to the right hand of the Father and He is now serving as our advocate and our Savior. Amen? In Revelation chapter 21, John writes that while given a view of heaven, that he saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will all the nations walk, and the kingdoms of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What was promised to David is given to you and I as children of God. Would you give praise to the Father? Would you give glory to the Father? Would you give thanks to His Son who accomplished what God promised to David? For you and I stand in that promise today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to take just a moment to pause, to consider, to pray, and to respond for what God has called. Are you now a child of God? If not, would you repent from your sin and turn and to the one who accomplished all that God requires for us? If you're here today and you're struggling with accepting what God's plan for your life is, would you ask God to give humility? Would you turn your heart to praise and to thanksgiving? Would you accept what God has called you for you this morning? And would you look to the Savior the one who is the promised one of God. Father, we just thank you for the gift of the Savior. We thank you for your promises. We thank you, Lord, that we're not active initiators for what can we do of ourselves. Who are we? But like David, we're passive recipients of your promises and of your goodness and your kindness and your grace. Father, may that drive us to love you more and desire to serve you and to praise you for all that you've done as we sit and rest in the promises of God. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray.
We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.